The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that tallies the gains and losses of everyday history. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're talking about the broken promise of the Freedmen's Bank. It was founded to give newly freed black Americans a fighting chance in the free labor economy of the Reconstruction era. But the bank's eventual and avoidable collapse left black families less financially secure than ever. The day was June 28, 1874. All branches of the Freedmen's Bank closed their doors for good. The Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, more commonly known as the Freedmen's Bank, was established in 1865 on the same day the Freedmen's Bureau was created. During its nine years in business, The bank provided financial services to tens of thousands of formerly enslaved black Americans. At its peak, the bank operated 37 branches in 17 states, including every former slaveholding state, as well as in Washington, D.C. By its fifth year, nearly all of those local branches were run entirely by African Americans. However, the bank's upper management and board of trustees remained all-white and all-male for most of the institution's brief existence. With hardly any government oversight, the directors funneled their depositors' money into a series of increasingly bad investments and risky speculative ventures. By 1874, their gross mismanagement had taken its toll on the bank and a collapse seemed imminent. There was a last-ditch effort to save the bank by installing Frederick Douglass as its new president, but the damage was too far gone. 
Accounts differ on whether the official closing was June 28th or June 29th, but by early July, one thing was clear for certain. The Freedmen's Bank had failed. The need for a bank for freed black people first became apparent during the American Civil War. By 1862, many black Americans had found employment in Union garrisons, and while they were paid for their work, they were often denied access to conventional banks, making it all but impossible to accumulate any real savings. As a result, some black soldiers simply spent their pay as quickly as they received it, while others lost their earnings to white swindlers who promised to invest it on their behalf. As the war went on, northern abolitionists and sympathetic army officers began calling for the creation of a Freedmen's Bank, a place for black soldiers and freedom seekers to safely deposit their money. Eventually, a few small banks were established for that purpose across the South, but the services they offered were nowhere near as robust or reliable as those found at white banks. Deposit records, for example, were frequently misplaced, making it difficult for customers to recover their funds. There was also little to no communication between the banks, which once again made it harder to access funds. In early 1865, as the war was drawing to a close, two prominent white men began advocating for the creation of a centralized black bank. They were John W. Alvert, a Congregational minister and abolitionist, and Anson M. Sperry, a paymaster for the U.S. Army. Their calls to action, along with those of Senator Charles Sumner, ultimately convinced Congress to create a single institution under which all black deposits would be managed. The legislation incorporating the Freedmen's Bank was passed on March 3, 1865, and signed into law by President Lincoln shortly after. At first, the Freedmen's Bank was just as bare-bones as its predecessors in terms of service. Customers could make deposits, but that was about it. There were no loans available, and depositors had no say in the stocks or bonds in which their money would be invested. The bank essentially functioned as a kind of co-op, with each depositor owning a share of the bank's assets in proportion to the amount they deposited. Customers could open an account with as little as one nickel and would then earn interest on deposits of one dollar or more. Most individual accounts were small, ranging from five to fifty dollars on average, but collectively, the Freedmen's Bank grew to hold millions of dollars, the combined wealth of upwards of a hundred thousand customers. Many of them opened accounts with the first paychecks they'd ever received in their lives. Free from bondage, they now earned a living as farmers, cooks, nurses, barbers, and carpenters. And with a bank to secure the fruits of their labor, they were able to develop responsible financial habits, save up for major purchases, and build a cushion to protect against economic uncertainties. The Freedmen's Bank thrived during its first few years and had a profoundly positive effect on its customers. Recent studies have shown that the bank's account holders were more likely to be literate, educated, and employed than black Americans of the era who did not bank at Freedmen's. They also had higher incomes and owned more real estate. As the years went by, Freedmen's opened dozens of branches in southern cities with large black populations, and there's evidence that just living near a branch could have an uplifting effect on a community. Sadly, despite that strong start, 
the Freedmen's Bank showed signs of trouble as early as 1867. That's the year the bank's headquarters was moved from New York City to Washington, D.C. A grand new building was built there at the southeast corner of Lafayette Square, where the Treasury Annex stands today. The lavish bank headquarters cost more than $200,000 to construct and furnish, the equivalent of more than $4 million in today's money. It was a questionable expense for an institution that was still finding its footing, but the bank likely would have still survived if not for the reckless actions of its government-appointed trustees. Although it had been founded as a savings bank first and foremost, many of the bank's deposits were ultimately used for high-risk investments in railroad companies and real estate, most of which didn't pay off. To make matters worse, the trustees started allowing the first national bank to offload its liabilities onto the Freedmen's bank books, essentially sticking black customers with the debt of a white bank. Those decisions proved terrible for the bottom line of both the bank and its customers, but the largest damage was done in 1870. That's when the board made an amendment to the Freedmen's Charter, changing its loan and investment policy so that it no longer had to invest deposits only in government-backed securities. The revision allowed the board to take even greater risks with depositors' hard-earned money, a fact which customers were kept in the dark about, as they were never notified that the charter had been changed. The black writer and abolitionist Frederick Douglass later commented on the bank's decline, lamenting that it had become, quote, the black man's cow, but the white man's milk. Many factors contributed to the bank's eventual collapse, but one of the biggest was the lack of government oversight. Government officials were supposed to keep an eye on the Freedmen's Bank, but they didn't, enabling the trustees to run amok in their absence. In 1873, Congress responded to rumors of the bank's impending insolvency by sending the Comptroller of Currency to review the bank's books. But by then, it was already too late. A financial crisis known as the Panic of 1873 was the final nail in the bank's coffin. Real estate prices plummeted, borrowers defaulted on loans, and depositors demanded their money back. By spring of 1874, the Freedmen's Bank was hanging by a thread. Its coffers were virtually empty, and customer confidence was at an all-time low. In March of that year, the bank's white trustees resigned, and its longtime president, John Alvord, stepped down. In an effort to rebuild trust, the government convinced Frederick Douglass to take over as the bank's president. He invested more than $10,000 of his own money in the bank, but most account holders remained distrustful of the tarnished institution. Before taking the job, Douglass hadn't known just how bad the bank's situation was, but once he found out, he compared his new position to being, quote, married to a corpse. Things were so dire that only six weeks after taking the job, Douglas recommended that Congress shut down the bank. Ultimately, the Freedmen's Bank collapsed on its own, with many depositors losing their life savings in the process. The bank's assets were not backed by the federal government, and Congress initially refused to reimburse account holders. In the blink of an eye, more than 60,000 depositors lost a combined total of over $3 million, the equivalent in purchasing power to about $80 million today. 
Many of those impacted by the bank's closing continued to petition Congress for compensation. The process dragged on for years, and in the end, most depositors recouped only a fraction of what they had lost, while some received nothing at all. The Freedmen's Bank had started as a venture with great promise and admirable intent, but due to gross mismanagement and outright fraud, it became yet another harm inflicted on the black community. The bank's closing shattered a generation's hopes for economic advancement and has since been linked to a legacy of distrust toward the banking system among black Americans. The painful effects of the bank's closing are still with us today, but so too is the hope it represented at its founding. The belief that every American needs and deserves financial security, regardless of their background. Because as former President Obama once said, a country cannot succeed when a shrinking few do well and a growing many barely make it. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any feedback you'd like to share, feel free to send it my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.